Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening today. I feel like I said that every time. <laughs> well, it's good to thank people for listening to the show. It's yeah, polite. We really appreciate people listening to the show. Yeah. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing good. Uh, We just cleaned the apartment, and so I can feel my lungs reacting to the dust in the air. But we are seeing Wonder Woman later today, so... So everything's coming up, Sarah. Yeah, pretty much. It's gonna be good. (laughs) What are we watching today? Well, today we are watching Wolf Blood, A Tale of the Forest from (laughs) 1925. Cool. So our first werewolf. Yes, uh, Mm -hmm. this is the earliest surviving werewolf film, so it gets thrown around a lot in trivia books as the first werewolf movie and this sort of thing. It's it's not really the first werewolf movie, it's just the earliest surviving one. Okay. There is an earlier known example from 1913, this film called The Werewolf from Universal Studios. And it was actually not a feature film, though. It was a short two-reeler, and all copies of it were lost in a fire. Oh, It sounds like it was probably pretty cool. It was about a Navajo woman who becomes a witch when her husband abandons her and then teaches her skill to her daughter, Watuma, who then transforms into a wolf in order to carry out vengeance against white settlers. And then 100 years later, in modern times, returns from after death to kill again. That sounds amazing. Yeah. It was like 22 minutes long and, you know, it's called the werewolf, but like it's obviously more like, you know, the Navajo skinwalker Mm. mythology than like kind of, you know, the Eastern European werewolf. Yeah. Wolf Blood is a feature film and coming 12 years later, I guess that is. And it also actually has a North American setting. Uh, It was filmed on location in Eastern Canada and it references not the Eastern European werewolf, but rather the French Canadian folkloric creature of the uh, Lougarou. The thing that differentiates the French-Canadian Lugaru from what we think of as, like, werewolves mm-hmm. is they don't have to rely on the phases of the moon. Okay, so when do they transform? Uh, by choice, sort of. Oh, sweet. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Sort of. <laughs> so the general idea of the Lugaru is you turn into a wolf rather than, like, half man, half wolf, like, it's just, like, a large animal. Okay. At your own will, sort of. Because it can be a curse that's put on you Mm. that lasts for 101 days. Okay. And when it's a curse like that, then it's uh, kind of every night. Okay. It was a little tough to parse out the differences between those two situations because everything I had to get Google to translate into English. Mm. And so it wasn't always clear what things were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Lucaru comes from France, but then because there were so many French immigrants into Eastern Canada, but also like the Southern States Mm -hmm. uh, and Haiti, there's a lot of variations on this. Each, I I guess, French diaspora Mm -hmm. uh, has its own flavor of it. So you can figure out which flavor of this myth uh, is coming in based on the spelling. So the French Canadian is the Lougarou, L-O-U-P-G-A-R-O-U is the French Canadian version. 
And it has a lot of religious undertones. So if you don't follow uh, specifically the Catholic Church's teachings, which again makes sense, you are likely to get turned into a Lugaru by Satan. Sure. Um, And in that case, it would be like a curse. The Cajun flavor (laughs) is Rougarou, R-O-U-G-A-R-U. And then, of course, there's a Métis flavor, Mm -hmm. uh, which is R-U-G-A-R-U. Okay. For folks who might not know what Métis are... Métis are the descendants of mixed relationships between French-Canadian settlers and indigenous peoples. Mm Mm-hmm. So with Métis, the Rougarou has this mixing of native folklore with the Wendigo. Oh, sure. The Métis bridge the tales of the Wendigo with the Rougarou, mainly because everything's told orally. Yeah. So (laughs) So everything gets mixed up, sure. Yeah. And then with Cajun flavoring of it, R-O-U-G-A-R-U, it's more of a a human body with the head of a wolf or a dog. Weird. And this is where you see a lot of the uh, curses or spells for 101 days. Witches can turn into Rougarous. And, uh, yeah, you have to follow the, the Catholic Church rules and traditions. So, with Haiti, Lugarous have this need to eat children, specifically unbaptized children, whether they have been born or not. Mm. If they have not yet been born, Lugarous will stalk expectant mothers and then suck the kids' blood from her belly when she's asleep. Gross. Kind of like a vampire. Gross. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of different stories that kept coming up, but I'll just focus on the French-Canadian one since this film is set there. And again, there's always like these variations, but here's kind of the, the thing that was similar across all of them. So there's this miller in this kind of rural town in Quebec who has a stranger come to his door who is looking for work. Mm-hmm. So the miller hires him. And they play checkers every night. It was like, that was a weird thing that kept coming up, is that they would play checkers. As the stranger's helping out, over the months, there's Lugaru sightings and uh, sheep and cows that have been just torn to shreds sure. all around. The miller thinks that everyone's being too superstitious and such. <laughs> okay. One night, they hear the mill stop turning. And they can't figure out why. So the miller and the stranger go out. And it's pitch dark, and suddenly the miller doesn't know where the stranger has gone. He can't fix the mill, so he comes back in. And then this giant dog comes to attack him. Mm-hmm. And to fend himself off, he grabs like a knife or whatever and cuts the dog's ear, but then faints. Yeah. He wakes up, and the stranger's, you know, helping him up. And he's like, what happened? Like, I lost track of you. The miller sees that the stranger's ear is cut. Yeah. And he goes, it was you! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some of the variations with this is the miller kind of scoffing at the idea of, like, giving the church money every Sunday. Oh. Um, not going to church on Easter several mm-hmm. times in a row. Things like that. And the stranger just kind of being like, yeah, who gives a fuck about the church? Yeah, that's not a good attitude to have in Quebec. Yeah. So there's, like, the religious undertones. hmm There wasn't really anything about cures for if you might get turned into a Lugaru. There was the idea of, like, you just need to get through it for 101 days. Sure, yeah. Um, There was things that the spell might be broken if you're recognized when you're an animal. Okay. Or if blood is drawn when you are an animal. Okay. So in the case of that story, when the miller cuts the dude's ear, 
but if you suspect someone of being a Lugaru or you suspect that there's like one coming around your house, you're not really supposed to talk about it. Okay. And it seemed to be that like you don't talk about it because you don't want to get suspicion of like you being the Lugaru. I kept thinking of you don't talk about the stuff that fairies do because then they'll like curse you or something. Oh, sure, that it's kind of a related idea that if you talk about it, it'll target you or something. Yeah. That's such an interesting, like, element for, like, what is clearly such a, like, moralistic mm-hmm. folktale. Like, it's, you know, everything you've said is kind of stressed this kind of religious morality tale mm-hmm. element to it. And it's interesting that it's got this thing of, like, you know, don't ask, don't tell about the Luger. Like, <laughs> like if there are problems in your community, just don't talk about them, almost. like. Yeah, I wonder if it's related to the set number of days thing. Mm. Like, if they just need to get through it for, like, those hundred days, mm-hmm. don't ask, don't tell, just wait till it's over. Right. Yeah. Interesting. But that's the, the folklore of it all. And if listeners are curious about learning more about the Canadian side of the Lugaru folk tales, uh, you should check out this one writer named Marius Barbeau. Um, he lived from 1883 to 1969, and he's one of Canada's most well-known folklorists. Cool. Nice recommendation. The film, Wolf Blood, is a bit of a weird duck, because it, it seems to just kind of exist almost in a vacuum. It was the sole production of Ryan Brothers Productions, <laughs> which went bankrupt soon after making the film. So it seems like this production company kind of came together to make this movie, made this movie, and then went bankrupt. It was distributed by the Lee Bradford Corporation, which was a New York-based distributor uh, that formed in 1920. It's a little bit odd to see New York-based distributors at this late date from in the 20s because so many of the studios had already moved out to L.A. by this point. Okay. The Lee Bradford Corporation's biggest success was the 1925 adaptation of the adventure novel She, uh, and that movie was a really big deal. But then they would only distribute four more films after Wolf Blood before they themselves would go out of business in 1926. <laughs> Like, everyone who made this movie just stopped making movies after this movie. Maybe it's cursed. (laughs) The film stars George Kessebro, who co-directs with Bruce Mitchell. And it looks like Mitchell was kind of the experienced film director. Uh, He'd been working since 1915 and would continue to direct films until 1935. Kessebro was an actor. He was from Minneapolis, and he starred in 400 films from 1915 to 1954. Wow. Uh, But it looks like the majority of them were serials and B-movies and, Mm. you know, kind of cheap, get-it-out-quick kind of fare. Strictly a B-movie actor. Uh, And yeah, it looks like he kind of directed this film so that he could star in it, and then Mitchell kind of co-directed so that they would have a more experienced person on it. They shot on location in Canada, and uh, the movie has like a weird credit where it credits its writing to an original story by Dr. C.A. Hill, and then gives an adaptation credit by someone else. But I couldn't find any information on either of those two guys or what this original story was, if it was some short story or something that it was based on. There's very little information about any of the people involved in this movie, which Mm. is why I sort of say that it feels like it exists in a vacuum where it just has sprung out from the ether and, you know, people emerged from the fog of history to make this movie and then (laughs) went right back into the fog. 
you know, it, it seems very likely that this is a movie that wouldn't even really be remembered today, except that it's got this sort of trivia question distinction as being <laughs> the earliest werewolf movie. Since its producer and distributor went out of business within a year of its release, there was no one to renew copyright on it, so it's been in the public domain since 1954, and, you know, it's just this weird little footnote of a movie. Interesting. So if it's in the public domain, are we watching it through YouTube? Yeah, we're watching it on YouTube, and we've got it up on the Scream Scene YouTube playlist. There are two home video releases for Wolfblood. There's a terrible DVD from Alpha Video, a company you should never buy DVDs from if you can avoid it. Uh, and then there's a mildly better release from Grapevine Video, and we will be watching the mildly better release. <laughs> um, Grapevine at least used like a 35 millimeter print, and it's tinted, and it has music. Uh, the Alpha Video release is from a 16 mil print, and it's just grayscale, no music. But neither of them are like gorgeous, uh, and it speaks to the fact that like. This isn't Phantom of the Opera. This is a weird indie movie from the mid-twenties. All right, folks, so you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will have watched Wolf Blood from 1925, and we will discuss it. See you on the other side, everybody. everyone welcome back to scream scene <laughs> we we just uh, finished watching wolf blood a tale of the forest and uh i feel like we just got conned i feel like i know a lot about logging now sure it's like a logging documentary sure i i think <laughs> we have been the victims of false advertisement <laughs> Because, like, uh, can I just say this up front for, for everyone listening before you get too in-depth into this episode? Uh, there is no werewolf in this werewolf movie. Yeah, the only mention of the Luguru or any kind of werewolf thing comes in, like, the last third, last ten minutes even. Yeah, no, the, the mention of the Luguru is in the last ten minutes of this hour-long movie. Yeah. Yeah, this is not a very long movie. It sure feels like it, though. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so let's just do our plot summary. Sure. So, Dick Bannister. <laughs> Dick Bannister's our lead character. He's played by George Kessebro, and he's the foreman at this uh, at the Ford Logging Company out in the like forests of eastern Canada. Mm-hmm. And they have this rivalry with Consolidated Logging, which is run by this guy named Jules Devereaux. So it's basically the English versus the French. And the, the rivalry's gotten so heated that Devereaux's been like sending guys around to just maim people at the Ford Logging Company. Like they're just shooting them in the legs and the arms so they can't work, but not like killing them. You know, instead of just calling the police or something, Dick sends away for the owner of the company, who he's never met, and a surgeon. And it it turns out he's in luck, because the owner of the company is Edith Ford, and she's a young woman who likes to throw jazz parties, who inherited the company from her dad, and she's engaged to 
a wealthy, non-practicing surgeon, so... Dr. Jean. Is that his name? It's, well, Dr. Eugene something or other, but she always calls him Jean. Okay, I thought his last name was Houston. So they come out to see the, the company, and there's been problems with the Ford loggers because they're all starting to drink, because what does anything even matter anymore if Devereaux's just going to come and shoot him? So they're drinking bootleg whiskey that's provided to them by uh, this Métis guy, Jacques Lebec. And he's like a troublemaker, and, and uh, Dick doesn't like having him around the camp. They refer to him as half-breed, which is very gross in and of itself. They don't actually say Métis through yeah. the whole movie. You just have to have the context of he has a French name, and we're in Canada, and he, they're calling him half-breed, so he's, he's Métis. And he has, like, I, I don't know if it's, like, blackface makeup or what, but he has something, some kind of makeup on him to make him look darker or sweaty or something. Yeah, I... To be honest, I, I, it felt to me more like they were just trying to make him look dirty. Like they were just trying to make him look like a dirty transient. The, the point is, is that um, he shows them around the logging company once they get there, uh, and him and Edith start to fall in love. You might want to clarify, because we were just talking about Jacques. Yeah, uh, Dick. Dick and Edith start to fall in love, because uh, her fiancé, the doctor, is like, clearly too old for her. Yeah. That continues for like 20 minutes. <laughs> Way too long. And it's about, like, I want to say it's like the 40-minute mark when Dick and Jules Devereaux get into, like, a big fight because Devereaux's trying to block the river that the Ford Company sends their logs downstream on. And so they get in a big fight, and Devereaux just leaves Dick for dead in the forest. Mm -hmm. And at one point, like, a pack of wolves show up, and Sarah and I are like, oh man, we're 40 minutes into this 60-minute movie. Here's where the wolf stuff's gonna happen. But it's not important. They just look <laughs> at him and then go away. Yeah. And the doc finds Dick on his way back from town, and he's like, oh shit. So he just takes him to the nearest cabin to try and fix him up. Turns out it's Lebec's cabin, and the doc is like, Lebec, like, you gotta give this guy his, your blood. He needs a blood transfusion or he's gonna die. And earlier in the movie, Dick had tossed Jacques out of the camp and said, next time I see you, I'll kill you. Like, I'll break every bone in your body or something yeah, like that. Like, yeah, very yeah. aggressive. They don't like each other. Yeah. So Lebec's like, I'm under no circumstances going to give this guy my blood, but I have a pet wolf. You can give him her blood. And, like, that sounds super weird, but no, the doc gets, like, real excited at that idea because he <laughs> thinks back to, like, this textbook he's read once that talks about how that's a possible thing. And the doc's, like, clearly just stoked to try this horribly unethical <laughs> experiment. So he gives Dick wolf blood, and he tells uh, Jacques to, to keep it a secret. Next scene. Uh, Jacques's telling everybody. <laughs> so Dick recovers, but everybody in the logging company now knows he has wolf blood, so they're all starting to say, like, he's a half-wolf, and they don't want to associate with him anymore, and no one wants to be his friend or go around him. So it starts to make Dick, like, a little weirded out and paranoid, because he doesn't know mm -hmm. what happened, so he doesn't know why everyone's shunning him. Meanwhile, Edith is going back and forth about, who do I choose, who do I choose? And she's like, no, I'm going to choose the handsome logging man over the surgeon. Yes. And just as 
Dick goes into the doctor's cabin and finds this textbook about transfusions and is reading this and things start kind of coming together. The doctor and Edith come in. They don't see that Dick is in the room and Edith explains to the doctor how she doesn't love him anymore. She loves Dick and then the doctor spills the whole beans to be like, don't love him. He's half wolf. Yeah, I gave him, I performed unethical medicine on him. You should love me, the crazy mad scientist. Basically. Not the handsome logging man who has wolf blood in his veins now. Dick stands up from the, his chair and they're like, what? You were here all along? <laughs> and he he's just like, clearly the acting is going a bit overboard with going a little crazed. Yeah. You know, the hair is flying wild. He has Wolverine's hair a little bit. Yeah, so he takes this to heart, this idea that he's got wolf blood and he takes it to heart, the idea that this means he's going to develop wolf-like attributes. That's what he's afraid of, that he's going to become this aggressive animalistic monster. Mm-hmm. So he he, like, leaves, and he starts to go paranoid and go a little mad and, and become obsessed with this idea, and he starts getting angry with people more easily and attacking people. He tries to, like, make out with Edith in a very, like, aggressive, rough, animalistic manner, and she is freaked out by that, so he's like, oh, not you too, goes off into the woods for a while. And then it's reported that uh, Devereaux, the rival logging company owner, has been killed and his throat's been torn out by like a wolf or something. And so Dick overhears this and is like, oh, maybe I killed him because I can't remember what I've been doing. Maybe it is me. Maybe I am becoming a wolf. And that's where at 50 minutes into this 60 minute movie, he's finally like, maybe I'm becoming the Lugaru, the wolf man of the north. And he starts to have like hallucinations of like ghost wolves, this like pack of ghost wolves that lead him off into the forest. So he follows the pack of ghost wolves. And it should be said that these ghost wolves are like double exposure, but it's the same three wolves yeah, they, over they, and over. They, they want to have a pack of like nine wolves, but they've only got like three. And I think they're just using huskies. Yeah. It's hard to tell because the movie's pretty old and the detail's not really there, but I think they're just using huskies as wolves. So he follows the phantom wolves into the forest and Edith follows after him like, no, Dick, come back. The phantom wolves lead him to this, like, high cliff where he's going to, like, jump off and kill himself. Wolf's head. Yeah, wolf's peak. head peak. Uh, and Edith convinces him not to do that. and Because the power of love overcomes all. Yes. <laughs> and then after that, we get a little bit of exposition where the doctor says, so actually, it was just wolves that killed Devereaux. Lebec found his body. It wasn't you. And then the doctor tells him that he didn't give him wolf blood, which I'm not sure is true or if that's just the doctor lying to him to make him feel better. Yeah, he he says it in a way that's like, I lied to Edith because I just wanted to keep her. Mm-hmm. But like, we saw... The transfusion. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> um, a lot of the like title cards and dialogue cards in this movie are written in an attempt to sound folksy and country and, and that sort of thing, but it makes them very hard to decipher mm. because you're trying to like get a clear meaning out of this kind of roundabout folksy way of talking yeah so yeah so then edith and dick can live happily ever after and they do the end that's the whole movie i wanted a tragic ending yeah like all werewolf movies end tragically and like it's something that i don't like when i watch the movies but ha- now having seen a 
will say werewolf movie. Uh-huh. For the sake of argument. For the sake of argument. And have it not end tragically? It was such a cop-out. Yeah. I feel cheated. Yeah. It's so weird. It's, it's, well, the whole movie's a cop-out because he never transforms. It's all in his head. He gets uh, messy hair and a five o'clock shadow that's drawn on. That's his transformation sequence. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like, it's purely psychological. And I mean, really what this movie is, is it's like a picturesque, romantic melodrama. And then it's got this, like, psychological body horror tacked on in the last 10 to 20 minutes. Mm. And, And I think the central question we have to decide is whether that 10 to 20 minutes of Dick going mad because he thinks he might have wolf blood and he might have killed someone and he might be a Lugaru is that weird bout with lycanthropy, you know, in, in the original sense of the word, a mental disorder. Mm. At the end of the movie, in the last 10 to 20 minutes, is that enough to say this is a horror movie or not? I think is going to be the central thing we got to, like, discuss here. Well, I, I had a question for you. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that the actual first werewolf movie was The Werewolf from 1913 or mm-hmm. something like that. Was that in the States? Yeah, that was a Universal Studios film. Right. And had there been anything else that you noticed that dealt no. with this? No. And that movie was about, like, Navajo belief, too. It was still not, like, what we would really consider a true werewolf movie, right? Okay. Yeah, I, I was thinking about the idea of, like, Kansapia as the mental illness rather mm-hmm. than as the actual, like, turning into a wolf <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if that's what they were going for. Given that we saw this post Hands of Orlac, the whole freaking out and like the whole paranoia and madness is in this movie is so tame and honestly a bit boring. Yeah, like it's interesting that you bring up Hands of Orlac because it's the same kind of body horror where mm. like a shifty doctor has performed an unethical experiment on you and you've got this foreign thing in you now, whether it's uh, a, a murderer's hands or a wolf's blood. And you think that because this thing's in your body, it's going to change your behavior as if you have no control over your own actions kind of thing. And it's a similar kind of thing, but we talked about how the weak part of Hands of Orlac was the plot, but the thing that was good was the descent into madness, which took up most of the running time. Uh And here it's like flipped where there's so much plot of like, we went through that plot summary, but there's like a million characters that I didn't mention and a million bullshit back and (laughs) forths of nonsense that don't matter that I didn't mention. Yeah. And then the body horror stuff's just this little thing tacked on at the end. Yeah. Like even the transfusion, it's maybe on screen for less than a minute in a couple different spots. Yeah. So I'm also thinking about how the U.S. is still holding back doing true horror. Yes. Right? Like, we've seen it in the previous movies that have been American. And I think I think this does qualify as a horror movie because it does seem like its intent is to terrify, especially by the end. Mm-hmm. But the setup takes way too long. I feel like they're trying to set up like, oh, look at this great guy, like Dick, he, he's so great. He saves these drunk loggers from this tree crashing down. Mm-hmm. He takes the little bit of first aid skills he has to like try to sew people up and like doing all these great things. So it has that kind of trope with werewolf movies of great stand-up guy gets this tragic curse on him. Mm-hmm. But it took way too long to set that stuff up and then they realized that they only had like 10 minutes of film left and they still needed to wrap everything up. As well as the idea of, like, we can't really show anything supernatural yet. Yeah, there's The still... only thing supernatural is the ghost wolves. Which is all in his head, yeah. right? And it's, yeah, there's still that taboo or that 
reluctance to really do anything supernatural definitely is happening. I also feel like the running time of this movie is so weird because it is only an hour, which Mm -hmm. is shorter than a lot of stuff we've seen recently. It just sort of feels like there wasn't enough to this story or that they explored it in the wrong direction. Like clearly the central idea you know, when they were coming up with this movie was Mm -hmm. this guy gets a blood transfusion from a wolf and he thinks it's going to turn him into a wolf man. That's Mm -hmm. the central idea. But then when they were like, okay, how do we expand that idea into a full plot for a full movie? Instead of saying the inciting incident is this transfusion, let's see where the story goes from there. They basically made that transfusion the ending of the movie and decided to give us all this backstory of like here's what logging is and here's how (laughs) like look at these picturesque shots of the woods like the best part of this movie is just the like nice scenic outdoor footage of these forests in the 1920s i mean like that was really cool to see but that's not what we came here to see yeah exactly like this is not the movie we were expecting at all uh so it was a disappointment for us I guess the question becomes, like, does that make it a bad movie, though? Like, is it a bad movie just because it wasn't what we wanted? I think it is a bad movie. (laughs) Because even with the whole front half, whole front two-thirds of this movie being this romantic drama, it's not well done. No. It's boring. There's a whole lot of nothing going on for long stretches of this movie. There's a lot of times where, you know, it's a silent film, And there isn't a lot of dialogue cards in this movie, but we'll still get, like, a five-minute shot of two people just standing talking to one another. And it's like, you guys know we can't... Hear you. (laughs) Yeah. Like, why are we doing this? Yeah. And I mean, another reason why I'm like, this is just a bad movie is the racism and sexism that's in it. Yeah. Like, with calling Jacques a half-breed. And then there's this character named Pops who Ben didn't even, like, go into because he's so inconsequential. He's just, he's the comic relief character is all he is. But his only joke is that women just want to eat everything and will just steal your money. Yeah, he's supposed to be, like, the amusing drunk the old man drunk kind of character, Mm. Um, you know, with all the, like, folksy, like, oh, what a character that guy is kind of thing. But, yeah, the only dialogue he ever gets is, like, he manages to relate everything that happens in the movie back to how (laughs) women are terrible, and it just gets gets tiresome. Like, you get what they're going for, but it gets real tiresome. Yeah, and I mean... Like, I'm, I'm trying to cut it some slack because it's 1925, but it's also just, like, the fact that they felt they needed to bring in so much comic relief mm-hmm. for something that it was, like, a romantic drama in the beginning and then a psychological thriller, let's say. That's giving it a lot of slack, but psychological thriller by the end, like, it did not need that much comic relief. It felt like they kept trying to hedge their bets. Like, they yeah. started with this idea of the wolf blood transfusion and the horror of that and realized that that could be, like, really icky and gross and taboo maybe so then they were like okay well what if there's a romance story to kind of soften the blow and what if it takes place in this picturesque setting to soften the blow and what if there's a bunch of other story happening so that you don't even notice the wolf junk and what if there's like 10 comic relief characters and what if we have 20 minutes of the movie just be a jazz party at the start (laughs) that has no significance on anything except to establish who edith is Like, that jazz party lasts longer than all of the wolf stuff in this movie. I'm pretty sure if you sat down with a stopwatch. Well, it definitely just feels like it, which is not good. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right about saying it's, you know, it's not a good movie because Pops is a good example of this. Like, you can give the movie, you can say it's 1925, so you can give it some slack for the sexism, but I feel like in a good comic relief character from that period, he'd have, like, one sexist joke and, like, one racist joke and, like, one... You know what I mean? Like, he'd have a few 
bad, poorly aged, off-color jokes. He just has one that gets repeated over and over. Yeah. And I think that's what makes it, that's a bad movie then, even for that time, because there's no diversity of humor. <laughs> yeah, it's, so it, it's not a good movie. I do stand by calling it a horror movie. What do you think about that? I guess you're right. Yeah, I've been struggling with the question of, is this movie got enough in it to qualify it for the list? It really feels like you've been suckered when you watch this movie. Like, <laughs> yeah. it, there's, you know, we're, we were sitting there just watching it going, where's the bloody werewolf for, like, so much of it? And there kept being scenes where we're like, Are, is this when it's going to happen? Is this when it's going to happen? And, you know, we stood up and we're like, finally, when he actually had the line where he says, I think I might be coming a Lou Guru, we were like, oh, here we go. And then I paused the movie and we saw that there was ten minutes left. And we were like, what the hell is this movie? <laughs> It's not just that the the last 10, 20 minutes of it finally goes to that body horror place, and even though there's nothing supernatural and there's no transformation, like, clearly it's still trying to do the Hands of Orlac body horror psychological madness thing. And and what I was struggling with was, was that enough of the movie? And I think where I've arrived at is it's not enough of the movie, which makes it a bad movie, but it's still clearly what the central idea of the movie was. It's not an afterthought. It's not a subplot. This is the plot. The fact that it comes in the last ten minutes is because it's a bad movie. Yeah. But if that's the central idea, then that means that the you know the primary goal was to tell a story about this kind of horror. So that makes it a horror movie. It just makes it a shitty one. Yeah. I think what's making it hard to figure out what this movie is trying to do and like also figuring out what the writer was thinking, <laughs> especially with the doctor character, yeah. is before the transfusion, Dick is a bit on the rough side. Mm -hmm. Like, he's aggressive to people. He, like, threatens to break people's bones and, like, strangle people. Yeah, he's a man's man. Yeah. He's a lumberjack. <laughs> so he, he has these aggressive tendencies, and those just continue when he thinks he's turning into a werewolf. Yeah, he's the same guy, but now he just reads all of his previous dickishness no pun intended, as being elements of being a wolf, but, like, there isn't enough of a contrast of pre-wolf dick and post-wolf dick, I guess. Yeah, I... I did love the doctor's immense excitement at getting to perform yeah. unethical experiments, and then his, like, shifty-eyed looks for the rest of the movie when everyone got close to realizing what had happened. Yeah, his, like, oh, shit. Yeah. I will say that while, you know, Pops was a very sexist character, like, Edith's pretty cool. Like, yeah. being this, like, woman who's in charge of this big logging company, and she has that line of dialogue where, like, her layabout surgeon husband, who's so wealthy he doesn't even have to practice, is like, why don't you spend more time with me? Why do you do all these parties? And she's like, because I fucking work hard all day, and these parties are my time off. Yeah, that was cool. The actress was really trying to give it with, like, whatever the script was giving her. Mm -hmm. Like, doing the who do I choose whatever. It was a bit tedious, but that's just what they gave her. Mm -hmm. Was there anything else we liked about this movie? The scenery, Edith, the doctor? No. Okay, that was, that was it. All right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was really cool to see a movie set in, like, eastern Canada with, like, French stuff and, like, mm -hmm. yeah. It's, and it was really cool, like, we kind of talked about the picturesque things, but, like, in the foreground are the two people talking, but then in the background you see the logs being, like, taken down and, like, falling down into the river and, like, it was really cool to see the logging operation. Yeah, you, you get a better sense of, like, how logging operations work in this movie than you do anything to do with werewolves. Um... <laughs> 
I have a weak spot for stories about rival corporations <laughs> and like you know, hardworking people and, like, backdoor machinations. And I, I have a, a real soft spot for, like, lady CEO characters. So, like, at the start of the movie, I was pretty into that. But then, like, nothing proceeded to happen. I think the thing about this movie is it would have been better if it had just been honest and committed to its own premise. Yeah. Because that's the thing. Is it just feels to me like it has this premise and then it doesn't... Like, the title of the movie is Wolf Blood. Yeah. And the transfusion, A, comes out of nowhere, and B, comes in halfway through the movie. More than halfway, I, I would guess. I think it's about 40 minutes in that he gets the transfusion. It's a movie that's not committed to its own premise, and I think that's its biggest problem. Yeah. So speaking of transfusions, uh, we didn't know that that was the inciting incident. So I had done some research about blood transfusions in relation to the transplant research I did for the Hands of Orlac episode, episode 12. I mentioned this guy named Jean-Baptiste Denis mm -hmm. in that episode. Yeah, um, I remember that. So just to kind of like refresh people's memories. So Jean-Baptiste Denis was a French doctor. He lived 1643 to 1704. And he did the first fully documented blood transfusions between people and animals. Specifically like sheep and calves. Okay. This happened in 1667. This dude is was the first and last person to do it, basically. <laughs> okay. So, um, he did it several times throughout 1667. The fourth time he did it, it was in the winter, and he was doing a transfusion of calf's blood to this guy named Antoine Mavoy. He's called a madman. Um, Antoine or, or, or Jean-Baptiste? Antoine. Okay. Because the idea was if we give him this blood, it will fix his insanity problems. Oh, so related to the issues that we see in this movie of the animal's blood will affect your brain. Right. Antoine died after the third transfusion, and Denise was charged with murder. And uh, he was acquitted, and after that he quit medicine. But because of the taboos around doing these transfusions, like, people actually thought, like, oh, you must be half pig or half cow now mm. or whatever. Okay. In 1670, so three years later, blood transfusions between people and animals were banned. Um, and that was right up until Carl Landsteiner's 1902 discovery of the four blood groups. Right. It gives a bit of context about this. So it's not so far-fetched for it to be like, you know, this blood transfusion between human and animals is a possible thing, but don't do it. <laughs> right. Sure. Yeah, there's some, there's some cultural stuff going on there that we just didn't know about going in because... We didn't know what this movie was going in, really. Yeah. Um, and that certainly, you know, says that this movie does have, you know, a fear that it's speaking to, mm -hmm. that it has some social relevance that it's speaking to, that it's trying to make the audience afraid about what the possibilities or consequences of an operation like this could be. Do we want to rank this? Sure. Yeah. If we're ranking it, if we've decided it goes on the list, let's, let's try and rank it. Okay. Where are you looking? I'm looking pretty near the bottom. So looking at the last four on the list, number 18 is the Haunted Curiosity Shop, mm -hmm. which had the one shot of the... Spooky face. Uh, yeah. In the, in the cauldron. And it also had the, like, questionably racist uh, imagery. In and the, the weird the dwarf creepy girls. Gnome. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, number 19 was La Monster, which was um, set in Egypt and had the magician making, like, monsters to scare the pharaoh. Mm -hmm. uh, number 20 is Manoir du Diable, which was actually the very first movie we watched. Okay. And it was, like, you know, the castle and people chasing around and the yeah. flying bat, whatever. And number 21 is... 
Le Chateau Hunt, which was like the follow-up remake, basically, of Manoir du Diable. Yeah, just with uh, the hand-painted color. Okay, so what I'm thinking of putting wolf blood uh-huh. is between the monster uh-huh. and Manoir du Diable. That's how low you're looking. Yeah, so the reason I'm thinking that is because what the movies were intending to do and mm-hmm. how well they succeeded in that. Okay, yeah, I mean, I was, I was definitely thinking it was... 100% below The King Bag at Jekyll and Hyde. Mm-hmm. That movie's terrible. <laughs> um, this movie, I feel bad putting it below The King Bag at Jekyll and Hyde. I don't. <laughs> but, it, well, I, feel, I just feel bad for, like, poor Dick Bannister thinks he's a wolf. But you're, you're putting it way lower, eh? What's number 17? Le Chaudron Infernal. Okay, and then 16 yeah. is Baggett? Yeah, so, like, the last, like, five on the list there are all just shorts. Just little Melies shorts, mm-hmm. and you're sort of putting it smack dab in the middle of there. I, I see what you're trying to say, though, about how well does the movie succeed at what it's trying to do, and we've identified that the like primary problem of Wolf Blood is that it's clearly trying to make a movie about the horrors of like getting your blood transfused from an animal, and it doesn't succeed in that at all because it is trying to hedge its bets so much. So why is it better than Devil's Mansion or Haunted Castle, the last two on the list for you? I think because those two, which are pretty much the same movie, mm-hmm. are just guy in a costume runs around a castle. Yeah. Right? Not even a full castle. Like a castle scene mm-hmm. on a, a, a stage. Yeah. It's so hard to compare because those movies are so primitive. Mm-hmm. Are you feeling that, like, because we're currently comparing these very short primitive films to something that's a feature length, that it's not really fair to do that, and so you think it should go between... The King Baggett, Jekyll and Hyde, and The Infernal Cauldron. That was where I started to look, but then I thought to myself that, like, Infernal Cauldron's really well made. The thing about those Melies movies is the reason why they've been culturally remembered for over a hundred years is that Melies was good at what he did. Yeah. And this movie isn't good at what it does. It's only remembered because it's the earliest surviving quote-unquote werewolf movie. Yeah, like it's it sneaks in on that as on so many technicalities, right? There's an earlier werewolf movie, but it's lost, so this one's the earliest we have. But like calling this a werewolf movie, like there's no werewolf in this werewolf movie. I cannot be fucking clearer than that <laughs> about it. Like it's such a weird asterisk technicality movie that makes it remembered. I think this movie might be better than La Monstra, but not as good as Haunted Curiosity Shop. Only because this is a ranking of horror movies, and La Monstra kind of is still very comedic, mm. with its, like, the magician playing tricks on this pharaoh, creating all this goofy stuff with this monster who's not quite what the pharaoh wants and stuff. And, I mean, I remember in the episode where we talked about it saying that it was a little creepy just because turn-of-the-century masks are always creepy. <laughs> Whereas Haunted Curiosity Shop, it's just got a little bit more of that turn-of-the-century weirdness with the, like, gnome girls and the, like, cauldron with its weird whoosh and the face in the cauldron that was weird and freaky. I mean, I'm not saying Haunted Curiosity Shop's a a masterpiece either, but Haunted Curiosity Shop is, to me, scarier than La Monstra, which is why it's above it on the list. Wolfblood, at least, is trying to be about something scary. Mm-hmm. It fails in really addressing it, but it's trying. So I think it goes above La Monster because I don't think La Monster was ever intended to be scary. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, and I definitely agree. I never expected us to actually rank any feature films down here among the shorts <laughs> from the first episode. Yeah. Oof. So then coming in 
at number 19 on the list. Wolf Blood, A Tale of the Forest, 1925, directed by George Kessebro and uh, executive producer Dick Wolf. <laughs> sure. So if you'd like to see this list we've been talking about, you can check it out at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com, which is also where you can see the link to our YouTube playlist, send us appeals or suggestions through our ask box. If you don't want to find us on Tumblr, you can also find us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. You can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. And you can also find us on SoundCloud and iTunes where you can leave a comment or a review. Reviews are how iTunes sorts podcasts. So the more reviews we have, the more visible we are to other people. So reviews are very helpful in that regard. And we'd really appreciate it, too. Really, We'd love to hear your thoughts. Absolutely. What are we watching next week, Ben? Uh, Another very obscure thing like Wolf Blood? Not obscure, but maybe... It's going to be a toss-up as to whether it's better. Um, <laughs> next week, we'll be watching the film adaptation of the popular Broadway play, The Bat. Oh. Uh, directed by Roland West, who we've already seen his film, The Monster. Mm-hmm. Cool. What year? Is 1926. Cool. Uh, yeah, so that should be a fun one. It's another one of these American horror comedy, old dark house spooky night in a bunch of comedians in a mansion movies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it'll be a fun time. Because <laughs> I'm watching it with you. Uh, wow. <laughs> really, the enthusiasm's just drained after <laughs> Wolf Blood, huh? Oh, yeah. man. I hope you guys all enjoyed this episode, even if the movie wasn't too good. Yeah. And I hope we'll see you all again next week for our next episode. Thank you so much for listening, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.